live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. It's heart of the matter. Thanks for joining us. Looking for the right gift for Christmas? Do you want a book that you can give your family that might spice up the Christmas conversation? Try getting Born Again Mormon moving toward Christian authenticity. Now, uh, I want you to know that we sell that book for $9.99. And uh, with an average cost of $1.76. But uh, it, we can send it to you free. If you're having financial hardship, no problem. Just go to our website, order the book. You'll see ways to do that, and we'll ship it out to you. It's also available at Christian Gift and Bible in uh, Salt Lake Valley and also Benchmark Books in Salt Lake City. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear God, we... We thank you for this airtime. We ask your blessings and spirit to be upon the studio and the staff and the operators and, and the camera people and our tech people. We ask you to be with the listeners and viewers. And uh, Lord, just open up our hearts. Help me to say the things you want me to say in this important message. In Jesus' name, amen. Since our first show, we've had a number of doctrinal uh, discussions about several things. And uh, we're going to talk about a unique one tonight. I am always amazed when I look at the history of the world about where people are. We're here one day and we are gone the next. Where does everybody go? I don't know if there's been a trillion people, but probably. Where are the trillion people? Where have they spent all the time when they disappear from this earth? when they take their last breath. What happened to the 2,000 plus that died at 9-11? Where are they? Where's my older brother, Jeff? Where did he go? Where's John Lennon? Where's Karl Marx? Where's Samson and Delilah? Where's Cain? Where's Abel? Do they just float off into to netherworld? I have never been to a funeral yet of any denomination where anyone says the departed has gone to hell. Never. Every single funeral I've ever been to, they say no matter what the person was like, that they are with God again. It's an interesting concept. Do all roads lead to heaven? Do all roads lead up the mountain? And when you get to the top of that mountain, do we all have the same perspective? According to the Bible, that is not true at all. Jesus, in fact, the one who the liberal people will use as just the author of all love said some very harsh things about life when it comes to where we go. Matthew 7:13. Listen to this. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to what? To destruction. And many be there which go in thereat. And then what he does is he gives us a mere image of that verse in the next passage, uh, verse 14. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way. So first time he says broad is the way and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few be there that find it. Okay, so then we turn to Luke and there's even a greater depth added to this kind of scary passage by the Lord. Luke 13, 24 says, has the Lord say, strive to enter in at the straight gate for many, again, many, I say unto you will seek to enter in and shall not be able. 
What is at risk here? What is Jesus talking about? In his own words, destruction of people, of the soul, destruction, a place called hell. I'm going to address eternal destruction tonight. I'm going to speak to you about a very non-politically correct word called hell. We live in a time when the notion of hell is mocked and scoffed at. Even when Bible-believing Christians don't want to hear about hell, don't want to talk about hell, and many of them don't even believe in the biblical concept of what hell is. We live in an age when uh, those who accept the traditional biblical notion of hell are criticized. And we, I mean, it's almost rampant that if you talk to anybody who's a believer, if you talk about hell, they believe it for their enemies, but they don't believe it for anybody else. Hell's an interesting concept. I want to say for the record, here on the show, I believe 100% in a place called hell, terrifying as that place is. And we're going to talk about how terrifying it is. One of the greatest tools devised by the enemy is the renunciation or a revision of what hell is according to the Bible. And there's all kinds of renunciations and revisions of hell. We have all kinds of ideas that are not biblical that make it easier of a concept for us to grasp or, or accept amongst ourselves. Let's talk about it for a minute. The, world, the word hell is derived from the Saxon word helen, H-E-L-A-N. And it means to cover in an invisible place, to cover up, to hide in an invisible place. In Scripture, there are three words, four, but I'm, I'm going to talk about four, but let me give you the three main words that describe hell. Sheol, which is a Hebrew word. Um, the next one is uh, Hades. And the third is Gehenna. All right, the, the Hebrew word Sheol occurs in the Old Testament 65 times, and it is rendered grave 31 times in the Old Testament. So the Hebrew is called the grave Sheol, which is another word for hell, and I'm going to explain that. It literally means to ask and to demand. That is a, such a strange concept. The Hebrews said Sheol, and what the meaning of that word is to ask and demand, okay? And it also has the connotation of it, enough is never enough, okay? Now think about that. Enough is never enough. Proverbs 30.15 gives us some idea of what this state is like for enough is never enough. And let me read that to you. The horse leech has two daughters that cry, give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things that say it is not enough, it is not enough. The grave, another word for Sheol, the barren womb, the earth that is filled not with enough water, and the fire says, never says it is enough, okay? In 31 cases in the authorized version of the word, Sheol is rendered as hell. It says hell in the Old Testament. The place of disembodied spirits. The, in uh, Proverbs 21, the inhabitants of Sheol are called the congregation of the dead. Now we're talking about the Old Testament. Sheol was the congregation of the dead. It is the abode of the wicked, according to Numbers 16. It's a place for the good. Remember that. In Psalm 16, 30, 49, and 86, Sheol is a place for the good of the Old Testament. 
Job 11 describes Sheol as deep. Job 10 describes it as dark. And Job 17 describes it as having bars. In number 16, it reads that the dead go down to Sheol. So we have some ideas of where the imagery comes that good is up and light is up and we go down into this place called Sheol. Even the good before Jesus came went down into this place. The Greek word Hades found in the New Testament has the same significance as the Old Testament word Sheol. 1 Peter 3 calls it a prison. Matthew 16 says it has gates and it has bars and it has locks. Matthew 11 also says that it is downward. All right. Prior to the death and resurrection of the Lord, everybody in the Old Testament times went to Sheol. They went to Hades. Okay. The blessed uh, dead in, that went to Hades stayed in a place called Paradise, also known as Abraham's bosom. Okay, so they were in a place of Sheol, but they were in a place that was called paradise. The, uh, according to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, told by Jesus, the unsaved are in a place of insatiability, of torment, of unending thirst, where enough is never enough. Okay, And there is no escape. The saved went to Abraham's bosom. It seems that prior to Christ, Sheol and Hades meant one type of place. And in the New Testament, Gehenna describes a future place. Okay, So we have Sheol and Hades meaning one type of hell. Jesus comes and then we have a new meaning that takes on. And that word is called Gehenna in the New Testament. All right, It's a Greek contraction of the Hebrew place called Hinnon. I know I'm giving you a lot of things here, but it's interesting. Never used at the time of Christ is, is Gehenna used as anything but a place of future punishment. Gehenna is always a place of future punishment. And it got its name from a place the Jews called the Valley of Hinnom, which is first mentioned in Joshua 18. So this goes back to the Old Testament, this Valley of Hinnom. And what did they do in the Valley of Hinnom? They had a place called Tophet there. And Tophet means the burning place. And they sacrificed their children with fire, their children alive, to the god of Molech and Baal. So the Jews who become absorbed in sacrificial practices and idol worship, worshiped Molech and Baal. And they went to this valley of Hinnon, also known as Gehenna in the New Testament. And they sacrificed their living children there to these false gods. That is the place called Gehenna. Later on, after the exile, in order to show how much they hated that place that's there, it's a true place, they would take all their refuse, they would take the clothes that leopards wore or the home, the, the material that had been infested with leprosy, they would take dead animals, they would take the bodies of dead criminals and they would throw them in Gehenna where the fire never went out. And Jesus referred to this place always as a place for the lost, and he always talked about it as um, a future place of punishment. He used that place to describe the hell that exists for those who go there. It's a terrifying concept if you understand that Jesus knew this place was where they sacrificed children alive. It burns forever. The refuse is tossed there. It's torment and misery. 
And that is a real place that Jesus refers to 11 times he calls it Gehenna. All right? Finally, there is a fourth word that is extremely scary to me. I learned about this in theology school, and it's called the abusos. And the abusos is a Greek word that conveys an entrance that they actually believe exists somewhere on this earth where demonic spirits enter and exit the world. And it's a, it's a pit. It, the abusos is a long, deep pit, and it leads down and out from this earth. And they believe that these spirits come from the abusos and fill the sky. Now, the scriptures talk about Satan being the prince, having the prince of the power of the air that the air is filled with disembodied spirits and, or uh, spirits that never had bodies, these demonic spirits, and that is what they transport back and forth into this abusos, okay? It's interesting that LDS theology teaches that Satan rides upon the water, but the Bible teaches that he has, is the prince of the power of the air. The Bible has some very clear messages about hell, my friends, and it's no laughing matter. There are only two destinations for people after this life. There is heaven and there is hell. There are varying levels of punishments of hell. Did you know that? That hell has many different levels to it according to the scripture. So does heaven and, and its rewards according to the scripture. Okay, Hell is a place, believe it or not, politically incorrect or not, of torture. Of complete torture. Hell is also a place that is eternal. It doesn't end. And I'm going to prove that to you in the Greek in just a minute. In response to the biblical positions on hell, Mormonism has made hell a little bit more difficult to obtain than the Bible says. And once there, a little bit less painful than the Bible says it is. Okay? There's a very important reason for that. Joseph Smith's uh, grandfather, Asael, his uncle, I think his name was Jesse, and his father, Joseph Sr., were all universalists. They believed that everybody on earth goes to heaven. That's what the universalists believe. And this was very important to Joseph Smith. The Book of Mormon first refuted universalism and its doctrines, but as Joseph Smith kept going on and on in his mind, he started embracing universalism. And part of that embracing of universalism is the denial of hell being eternal or being a burning place. Um, with, as with almost every LDS definition of things, hell has a couple definitions, and let me give them to you. The first is, I'm not living with God the Father hell. And what that means is, Latter-day Saints believe that God is living in the celestial kingdom and only God the Father lives in the celestial kingdom. If you don't make it to that celestial kingdom, you'll go to a place called the terrestrial kingdom or the telestial kingdom. Those two kingdoms, God does not go. And if, even though they're a glory, according to Joseph Smith, and even though you'll kill yourself to get to the lowest one where the murderers and the adulterers and the liars all go, it's such a great place God never goes to those places, and so they consider that one type of hell, not living with God. Why? Because you also won't live with your family, and you also don't get to procreate and have more children for eternity, and on and on and on. That damnation, that stopping of your procreative powers in those lower kingdoms is one definition of LDS hell. So you understand that, okay? The next definition is they talk about a place called outer darkness, all right? And outer darkness is a place where apostates go, 
all right? Now, what an apostate is is someone who fights against the church. You are looking on your TV at an apostate, okay? I am going to outer darkness according to LDS theology. Here's the interesting thing about that, my brothers and sisters, is I lay my life every day, if I can, within my ability to Jesus. I believe in Him completely. I follow His ways. I try to be obedient to His commands. I have get, gotten rid of so much out of my life that would make me anything that He wouldn't want me to be. And yet, because I fight against a church, they say I'm going to outer darkness. A step above outer darkness is a place called the celestial kingdom. Murderers go there. Hitler will go there. Everybody will go there, but if you fight against the LDS church, you will go to outer darkness. Do you see the built-in mechanism there to get you to not speak out against things? It's not good. It's not good. But the worst thing is they preach a false hell as well as a false heaven. All right? The, the doctrines of the church teach in uh, the Doctrine and Student Manual, page 165, that hell has an end. That's a quote. Joseph Fielding Smith taught in Doctrines of Salvation that people must suffer through hell before entering the telestial kingdom, saying those people, after they have been punished for their sins and have been turned over to the torments of Satan, shall eventually come forth after the millennium to receive the telestial kingdom. That's in Doctrines of Salvation 2.209. This is man-made foolishness, my friends. This, these stances lead to a very dangerous idea that, well, if I don't make it to the celestial kingdom, the celestial is pretty good, and so is the terrestrial. Everything's going to be okay. They don't realize that the Bible teaches you're either are in the absence of, of the body, you're present with the Lord, or you're in hell, one of the two. Okay. What does the Bible say about hell? First, it says there are only two places. You can find that in Matthew 13, Matthew 25, Luke 16, 2 Corinthians 5, and Philippians 1. The doctrines of telestial, terrestrial, telestial, outer darkness are not biblical doctrines, okay, when it comes to a kingdom. Neither is the idea that some people will spend some time in hell and then get out, but more of this in a minute. Second, the Bible teaches that there are degrees in hell. Because of time, I'm not going to go into those, but those degrees can be found in Matthew 10, 15. Luke 12 talks about some servants of hell being beaten with a few stripes, others being be beaten with a lot of stripes. There are different punishments in hell. Hebrews 10, 29 talks about different levels of hell. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the great white throne judgment, which does not have to do with the believers in the body of Christ, talks about different uh, rewards and levels of hell according to the works that people do. Third, hell in the Bible and its punishments are everlasting and eternal. The LDS do not believe this. There's a great argument about that between them and the Christians. It's not a popular idea today to believe that there's a loving God who will send His creations to a place where they will suffer eternally and everlastingly. I want to give you two passages and talk about the Greek meaning to help you understand what that is. In Matthew 25, 46, it says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Okay? Very important scriptures. The word everlasting and eternal in the Greek are the same. And, they, and the word is Ionios. Ionios, okay? Ionios. 
so it says, for Ionios, for eternal life, which we believe will live forever with God if, you're, if you do everything you're supposed to and, or if you follow Jesus. We believe in eternal life. But when that same word is applied to eternal damnation and punishment, people say they don't believe that. But it's the same Greek word. Now, I want to give you another passage where it's even more emphatic. It says in Revelation that the smoke of their torment, quote, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. In the Greek... Um, it's an amazing phrase. And let me quote a Lutheran scholar, R.C.H. Linsky. He says this, the strongest, the strongest expression in our English for the word forever is the Greek eistus ionen ton ionon. The Greek takes its greatest term for time, the aeon, plural, pluralizes it, and then multiplies it by its own plural, even using articles which make the aeons the definite ones. In long story short, if it read in English, it would read like this. Where the punishment lasts forever and forever and for always and forever. That's how emphatic the Greek is on how long the torments and punishments are in hell. All right? Gehenna never ceases to burn. Jesus said it's a place where the worm never dies. Okay? Fourth, the Bible teaches that hell is not just eternal, but it is painful. Okay. Again, the passage in Revelations reads, And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke shall ascend up forever and ever. The Greek word for torment is basanizo. Sorry about my pronunciation. Uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon says that word means to vex with grievous pain and tortures. Art and Greendritz says it means to torture and torment forever and ever. It is very apparent when we read uh, in conjunction with other biblical descriptions of hell, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, that it is a place. I joke about a lot of things in my life. I have a light heart with a lot of issues. As I started to read the word, I stopped joking about hell. I don't find cartoons that depict hell as a funny place or, or commercials that show hell as a place where you sit with your buddies and drink beer as a funny thing. It's not a funny place. And we have been deceived when we go down the paths of thinking that hell is a place that we can trifle with or joke with. And there's one answer to getting out of it or not going to it. Only one. And that's Jesus. R.R., a friend of mine, listened to a story on the radio that I'm going to pass along to you. I checked with him today and he said he uh, heard it. It's, it's a viable story and I can give you the name of the author. I didn't hear it myself, but he told me the story. And this is how it goes. There was a man who was born into a Catholic family and he was a mafia member. And he justified his activities in the mafia of killing by saying he only killed those who deserved it. He, uh, he had taken many people's lives, and one day he was sitting in a restaurant, and someone came in, this guy was on the radio, put a gun up to his head and pulled it point blank. They took him out dead and took him to the hospital, and he was covered. He was, he was gone. And he said he went down a tunnel, and he came out onto a beach. And on this beach, he looked out to the ocean, and there were giant waves of fire coming in on the shore. 
He said he looked up and down the beach and there were thousands and thousands of people wandering around moaning and screaming and crying. And he saw a man he had murdered before walk by him. And there was nothing in his eyes but vacancy as he walked by and he didn't recognize him from the earth life. And this man said he looked up and he screamed, Jesus, please don't leave me here. Jesus, please save me. And he woke up being taken to the morgue and sat up, terrified the mortician people. And then he has spent his life on the radio and other places telling about the realities of hell. Um, those things are disturbing. Hell has been deconstructed in the Christian life. Hell has been taken out of the Mormon idea of what it really is. People go to hell not because they're bad. People don't go to heaven because they're good. People stay out of hell because they've accepted Jesus into their heart and life and believe him and follow him. People go to heaven because they've accepted Jesus and they believe him and follow him. It's simple as that. It has nothing to do with the actions. When I hear all the logical humanist arguments against hell, I think of one thing. I think of Jesus Christ and I think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think of him not wanting to take on the hell of this world. And he looks up to the Father and he says, Father, if there's any other way, can we do it? Let this cup pass from me. And this Father, his own Father, says, there's no other way. And then he not only lets him die and be crucified, he pours his wrath out for our punishment upon his son to pay for our crimes and sins. This same father, this holy fire, the scripture calls him, is not going to toy with where you go out of his love. He is not going to say, well, I love them so much. You don't have to go to hell because you rejected my son. I'm sorry. We have people wandering about who think that they can just skate by without this relationship with the Lord. I want to tell you hell is a reality. Absolute, as big of a reality in Scripture as heaven, which will be a glorious place for those who simply confess with their mouth, believe in their heart that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, we're going to go to the phones. That was a kind of a tough message. I had to talk about hell in the context of LDS. We're going to go to a phone, but uh, before we do, I want to answer, while the operators are getting calls, I want to answer last week we had a question. Uh, caller called, said Barnabas was called an apostle. And then uh, we couldn't find that in the scripture. And then a Christian called and said, yes, he is called an apostle with, with Paul. And so I did a lot of research on it. You're going to be able to get these notes on the website if you want them. But I want to answer what that's about. When the apostles, the 11 apostles, decided to choose another person to fill in the blank, they chose, they chose two people. They chose Matthias and they chose Barnabas. Those were the two runners. Now, for them to choose those two to be in the running meant those two had the qualifications of being an apostle. So they chose Matthias, but later on Barnabas is called an apostle. So what it does is it completely decimates the argument that there always has to be 12 apostles because if, if it's true that Barnabas was really an apostle like the scripture says, the type of apostle we're speaking of, then we had the 12 apostles, including Matthias, we had Barnabas, and we also had Paul. 
So we had 14 apostles walking around. So the idea of 12 only being the way Jesus established his church is done away with. But I don't believe that Barnabas was an apostle in that sense. If you look at Philippians and if you look at Second uh, Corinthians 8.23, the word apostle is used there, but it does not mean apostle in that sense. It means somebody who is sent forward as a messenger. Jesus in John is referred to as an apostle because he was sent forth by God, but he was not one of the 12 apostles. So in my belief is that Barnabas was called an apostle as being one sent to Antioch by the 12 to go and do certain work. And that's the context as a messenger in what, how he was sent. So I hope that clears that up. Let's go to the phones. We're going to Moses. Man, get to talk to Moses today. First time caller, Salt Lake City. Moses, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, what's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? Oh, not, uh, not too bad. Hey, uh, first time caller, uh, long time watcher. I've been a fan of the show for a little while. Oh, good. And, uh, you know, just to kind of give you a little background about myself, I, w I wasn't raised with kind of any sort of Christian affiliation, so uh -huh. I was just kind of uh, hoping to maybe give you kind of an outsider perspective looking in on kind of what your show's all about. Okay. And, uh, you know, the first part of your show, i got to say, was kind of cool. You were kind of, you kind of seemed kind of really upbeat and really kind of, you know, spreading the Embrace Christ message. And it just seems like lately, all your show is now is kind of just uh, a really wimpy approach at uh, slandering Mormons. And uh, I just don't, I don't see that there's any, any, message of bringing anyone to Christ with, with your bickering. Yeah. Is that your point? Yeah, and you suck, man. You suck. Excellent. Excellent. You gotta have one. He lies about his name. Moses. Moses. He lies. He says he's a first-time caller. And then he does that, oh, you know, now you know why I kind of get a little bitter sometimes. Okay, but I'm going to get rid of the bitterness, and let's go to the next caller, Alan, who says he's a first-time caller from Spanish Fork. Alan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Alan, you got to turn your TV off. Oh, hi, Sean. Hi. Hi, uh, I'm a first-time caller. Uh, my wife loves your show, and I love my wife, so I, I watch. <laughs> well put, Alan. <laughs> She uh, was curious, you mentioned that you're coming down to Orem on December 11th. First, I wanted to find out uh, if that's still on and where you're coming to. It's still on. It's going to be a heart in the home, and we, um, I, I don't give that out because they have a limited crowd, but we're not, I'm not going to be speaking at a church down there until we speak at uh, either the uh, Provo Baptist Church or at Scott McKinney's Christ Evangelical Church, and we'll let you know the dates when that happens. Okay, so the other one's a private one. Yeah, we are speaking at Miracle Rock uh, this Monday, but you heard that announcement. You were talking about the Orem area, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just listening to what you've been talking t about tonight so far, and, and I, my problem is I see, you know, I know you've talked about your girls and your family and stuff and how much you love them and everything. Can you think of something that they would do where you could send them to hell for eternity, uh, for eternity, anything that your daughters could do at this time that you could send them for eternity to hell? Well, 
me, I'm a man, and so and I have emotions, and, and they are my children in that way. But, and I am not holy, if they rejected the Savior and they said they will not accept him, I'll tell you this, I could understand God sending him there. But he's supposed to have more love than we can ever comprehend. He it? also has more justice. Well, yeah, but you have justice for your kids in that, too. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't uh, use anthropomorphical terms and personify my feelings for my children, but I can say I can understand God sending any one of my daughters who reject Jesus because Jesus has done everything for all of us, and if they become so callous and hard to reject him, then I would have to completely agree with that decision. So in essence, I'm saying I would understand perfectly God doing it. As far as me, what could they do on this earth if they murdered somebody? I mean, what could I do? I could, we are challenged to love and forgive. That is what we are supposed to do as Christians. Right. But, but God is a God of justice. He's a vengeful fire. If we read the Old Testament, what he's about, he didn't play around. Yeah. So I, I think in his position, and I really think that really, this is Sean McCraney speak outside of the Bible, but I think that we send ourselves to hell. I don't think he's sending us anyway. I think it would take my daughter to look at him in the face and say, I don't accept your son even though he's looking right at me. I do not accept him. You know? What about these people who have never heard of Christianity and about Christ and stuff like that and live on earth and never have the chance to be saved and stuff, and when they die... Romans one twenty answers that really well. It talks about the law being written in many places for us to see. We can see it in nature, and we can say we know there's a God in our heart. It's written on our hearts. It's written in the Word. It's written where we hear the Word. It's written when we watch at birth and, and through uh, miraculous events like that. God is constantly wooing to us. And so the aborigine out there who never hears, hears the Bible preached, who die, lives and dies, if he looked to heavens and said, I know there's something bigger than me, God will judge him based on that. Okay. Yeah. I, I, one other quick point. We were watching on the History Channel this last Sunday, and they were talking about the the different books that were put into the Bible, yeah, ones, and the ones that were not put in. And they had different uh, teachings that uh, different apostles did and that that did not reach, be put in the Bible when they were deciding which ones to be put in. And they had a couple of different books that Peter had written, different writings mm -hmm. that he had written, and they decided not to put in the Bible at the time. Yeah. And one of them, they were telling us that Peter wrote and had talked to Christ and Christ had told him about uh, people that go to hell, that eventually the people that are in heaven will be able to allow those people that are in hell to be able to come out of hell and go into heaven. <laughs> That's a great Catholic doctrine. Hey, man, you should read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Uh, it blows the credit. you got to see these guys who have spent their lives... Harvard graduates, and, and they examined all those uh, apocryphal and extra-biblical things, and those Gospels all have so much junk in them that they were definitely not written by Peter. And you just read that book, and it will really help you in questions like that. The History Channel is a secular channel that will not take the side of the Bible. It takes humanistic approaches to it. Read Lee Strobel, and you'll get some real good evidence for it. All right, man? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to Joanna, first-time caller in North Ogden. Joanna, you're in Heart of the Matter. Joanna? Hi, Sean. Hi. Is your TV on? Nope, it's off. Okay, what's happening? Not much. I just wanted to say that I love your show. 
Thank you. And I got two quick questions. Okay. One on subject is, don't the Mormon religion believe that if they're at a higher kingdom, that they can come visit their family if their family happens to go into one of the, the other kingdoms, the lower kingdoms? They do believe that. I've heard that. Now, I don't know where it's written, but they do believe that the higher can visit the lower, but the lower can't visit the higher. Okay, so they can still visit their families if their families are in a lower kingdom. Yeah, and to take it even a step further, which I didn't cover in there, there's a really popular doctrine going around that's been pushed by Boyd K. Packer and Joseph Smith actually uh, talked about it first, and that is if a couple is sealed in the temple and they have a child who goes wayward, if that couple remains true to the church, that child who's been sealed to them will ultimately live with them in the celestial kingdom no matter what they've done. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a doctrine Joseph talked about, and they've kind of bring that up now because so many parents of LDS kids are seeing them go wayward, and they're thinking, what if, what's gone wrong? And so they're throwing that one out there to make them feel a little better. It's a lie. Okay. Yeah. My second quick question is, um, well, I've been a Christian all my life, and living in Utah, I have a lot of friends that are, that are from the Mormon religion. And we don't talk about religion very often, but once in a while it'll come up, and Sometimes I wish there was just one thing or something that I could just say that would kind of plant a seed to want them to seek truth or, or seek out God more or know who Jesus is more. Mm -hmm. Any advice into what I can maybe say that might plant a seed for them? Yeah, I would, uh, what I would say, the thing that I've learned probably that will help the most is to ask them, do you have a surety and knowledge of where you're going to go when you take your last breath. Now, Mormons will view that as arrogant to say, I know I'm going to live with God. But Christians know that that is a manifestation of faith, that they believe in God's promises in the Word, and they say, I, believe, I trust what He tells me. That's a matter of faith. And so I know I'm going to live with Jesus because I have faith and belief on His promises here. So that is a good one is to say, do you know that you're going to live with God if you die tomorrow, if you die tonight? And if they say no, say, then how do you ever have peace? How do you ever have joy? They never have that. And to say, I want you to know that I have a peace and joy that transcends this world. You can have it too. And I'm not telling you to leave your religion. I'm not telling you to do anything else. But you can have it too. And if you ever want to know, talk to me. And then you can lead them to coming to know the Lord through prayer and confessing with their mouth and let the Lord take over. Wow. That's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to know. Again, I love your show, and I think you're doing great work. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sean. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to Sarah on line four in West Jordan. First-time caller. Sarah, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Hi. Hey, um, I was just calling. First of all, I wanted to tell you that I think you're doing a great job, and um, God bless you for being on the air. And my husband and I have a lot of LDS friends that... You know, we're praying that God will open their eyes and reveal to them the truth. Um, I had actually a comment about last week's show when you were talking about prophets. Okay. And I think a gentleman had called in once, or had called in and said that, um, you know, everyone's supposed to pray about it, you know, whatever the prophet says, and make sure that they agree or something to that extent. And I've had numerous, you know, LDS people say to me the thing, when the prophet speaks, the thinking's been done. Right. Is that something that, that is taught? Yeah. So. Uh, it's been taught. Uh, Ezra Taft Benson alluded to that in his 14 points of uh, true prophet or following the prophet. 
And then uh, Boyd K. Packer reiterated that remark, actually verbatim, when the prophet speaks of thinking has been done. And he took it from somebody whose name I can't recall from earlier church history. So, yes, they will say pray about what the prophet says, and they will say that, but they'll also say when the prophet speaks, the thinking has been done. So, in other words, pray all you want, search all you want, but if you differ, don't say a word. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then I just had another comment. I think that, um, you know, they, they're always saying that they're the, the only true church, the one true church, um, you know, and everyone else is wrong, and, you know, what we believe is wrong, and what, you know, the Catholics believe is wrong, what this is, because they're the one only true church. But yet if anyone tries to say anything that is, you know, contradicts what they believe in their own church, you can take the Book of Mormon and the, you know, and then what the prophet says, and they completely contradict each other, then we're bashing them. Yeah. You know, and so those are Sarah, my only that comments. Is, Sarah, that's a really good point, because... Like this show, you could probably imagine how many calls and emails we get that you're just bashing, you're just picking on the church. But they, they do the, like you've said, they do the very same thing in their stance against all religions being false. Exactly. And I've even had missionaries, you know, come to my door and I had some stop me in a, a grocery lot or parking lot. Uh-huh. And, you know, just went on and on, well, you know, arguing with me about what I believe. And I, you know, and I'm thinking... You know, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what mine, but don't make me feel like I'm believing the wrong thing if you won't listen to what I have to say also. Yeah. Great call, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, Andrew, first-time caller from Provo. Andrew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, I was wondering if you had heard of an organization here by the name of Farms and what your opinion was of them. Uh, I have heard of farms, and um, I have to be completely honest. What I've read from them is um, not very impressive. I, I think that they um, use spin, and I think that there, there's a problem in dealing sometimes, in my opinion, with certain topics with the LDS, because they'll spin so far out that you're way out here and really it totally takes you away from the point which is, you know, are you saved by grace? Uh, you know, the basics. Is the Bible the inerrant word of God? Those simple things you get taken away by with farms and all they're spinning on, you know, DNA and the Book of Mormon and things like that. Well, I also understand that they do reviews of books about Mormonism, including anti-Mormon books. Huh. Have they reviewed uh, Born Again Mormon Moving Toward Christian Authenticity? I have no idea. Well, Farms, pick it up. It's a good one. And check it out. See what you think. I know they did a very bad review on a book that, uh, whose author I love, who is a very Christian man. He's LDS. Grant Palmer wrote an insider's view of Mormon origins. And uh, the things that have been said about him and his book, I believe, were terribly unfair. And they were exactly what I just said. They spin way off the topic, and they just don't stick to the things that the author talked about. So I, I just don't appreciate farms very much. I think there's a lot of goats on, in farms. Okay, well, thank you for your comments. All right, man, thanks. We'll talk to you later. Right. We're going to Sam on line three, first-time caller. Sam, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sam. Hi, I was wondering if, um, how to witness to your Mormon friends. Well, how old are you, Sam? What? How, how old are you? Um, I'm eight. You're eight? 
Yeah. Well, that's a great age. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, have you been baptized yet or no? No. No, I haven't been baptized. And do you go to church a lot on Sunday? I go on Saturday. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist or just Saturdays when you go? What? Do you just go on Saturday or is that part of your religion? I can go on Sunday or Saturday. Oh, okay. Sam, uh, probably the best way to witness to your LDS friends is to just love them and talk about Jesus with them and share what Jesus means to you. Invite them to come to church. You may have some who uh, won't be allowed to, but you might have others who can. And just kind of just be a good example now and throughout the rest of your life, Sam. Uh, that's going to get more as you share Jesus with them and you show them by your life that you have the joy of, of God in you. That's going to help you a lot more than probably any arguing that I do on the show. Sam, you know, I want you to know something. Our show has a very specific purpose, and it is to teach people Mormonism and Christianity and to really get them armed in their discussions. But when I talk with my friends who are LDS, I'm not as, uh, as fiery and I don't talk about all this stuff. I talk about Jesus. Does that help? Yeah. All right, Sam. Thanks for watching. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. That was a great call. I love kids, man. They rule. I wish I could hang out with them more. <laughs> All right, we're going to uh, line two. Chris, first-time caller in Salt Lake T City. Chris, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, this is Craig. Oh, Craig, I'm sorry. How you doing? I'm doing good. Hey, you've got a uh, huge subject uh, to cover tonight in an hour. Yeah, I know. Heaven and hell. Yeah. And I, I just, uh, I'm a little confused, and I've always wondered that when you die, do you go instantly go to heaven or hell, or how does that play into Judgment Day? Oh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. You know what? Okay, and, and again, a difficult question to cover in a three-minute response or one-minute response, but let me give my best, okay? Okay. If you're a Christian believer and you have confessed Jesus with your mouth, you've been born again, and you believe in your heart, when you die, you are present with the Lord. You live with Jesus then. You go to Jesus, Okay. If you're not a believer, you go to hell. That is what the Bible talks about. All right? Now, as far as uh, like Revelation 20, where, the, where death and hell give up their dead, and they stand before the great white throne and are judged according to their wor works, and a book is open, and another book is open. All that is talking about people who went through the, um, um, oh, what is it? Oh, now I've lost a word. Well, let me step back and maybe it will come to me. Christians, if you're a believer now, and you're going to be judged at the Bema seat of Christ. You're not going to be judged at the great white throne. And the Bema seat is like the three levels of the uh, Olympics, where you are given crowns and your works are going to be tried according to whether they're hay, wood, stubble, stone, precious metals, whatever. And they'll be tried by fire and those things that last will be your rewards and you'll be crowned with those rewards as a Christian. But the great white throne judgment are for those who uh, go through the tribulation, whether they accept the mark or not. They're those who are in hell, and they will be judged according to their works and then given a place in hell according to, if they're not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they will be put in hell according to the level of their deeds. That's why we talked about there being different levels of hell, some with a few stripes and some with a lot. So hopefully that will give you an uh, understanding of what the Bible says about the judgments. 
And uh, Judgment Day. Nobody knows when Judgment Day will happen. Well, like I said, there's two. When the Bride of Christ is taken, which is going to be the rapture, and the, and the body of Christ is taken up, there is a judgment there because you're taken. If you're not taken, you've been judged as either being a Christian or not. So there's a judgment there. And there's a bunch of different ones, but the great white throne will be the last one where Satan and his angels are cast into that fiery eternal pit, and I imagine others uh, too, and then that will be the final one. And you want to hear a sad uh, addendum to all that? Yeah, sure. The scriptures say, and I can't tell you the reference, I can find it, that those who go on to live with God won't remember those who aren't there. Uh, that's pretty heavy. That is. So the uh, Mormons, they believe that you can get into heaven or go to hell because of deeds, and these deeds are spelled out in the Book of Mormon. Is that it? Not necessarily in the Book of Mormon. Uh, but the deeds are kind of spelled out in the Doctrine and Covenants about what kingdom you'll get based on your works and your actions. And uh, my last question, and I, I don't mean to be cute here, but I've always wondered, where is heaven and where is hell? Uh, well, hell uh, we know is below, but we don't, I don't know where. There's all kinds of conjecture. And heaven is above, and I don't know where. That's not cute. It's a good question. I don't... You know, some, uh, someone who's a really a theologian uh, would be able to, might give you more insight. I don't know where. But you know what? The dimensions of heaven are given in the uh, Bible, which are really interesting, and they correspond to um, the tabernacle and how it was constructed in its cubits and its lit weight and its, its length and its height and why they put cherubs on the one side of the cloth to shine down. There's a whole science or theology about that, which is very interesting, but my memory won't, or, and time won't allow me to share it. Hey. I sure appreciate your answer. Thank you so much. All right, God bless. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, we are going to Michael from Salt Lake City. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Got to turn that TV off. Okay, I got it off. All right, Michael. Hey, how's it going? Going well. What's going on? Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to, um, to ask you, um, because I, I've always believed in Jesus Christ, but I've never totally given my life to Christ. Yeah. But I have two brothers that, that I know um, that they're not going to heaven, and I just want to know um, how can I deal with that now in this world. And if I do give my life to Christ, is there some way that I can stop the pain inside of me from hurting, from knowing where, where they are? Wow, that's, that's a heavy question. I think part of uh, turning your life to Christ and then knowing family members aren't uh, make believers who are the salt of the earth and uh, as a, a that salt of the earth, meaning they preserve this earth from the decay that would go on if they weren't here. And so God steps back from visiting because of the salt of the earth preserves the goodness amongst the decay. And I hope that, that when you turn your life to Christ, you uh, contribute to being the salt of the earth to preserve this world, to last longer, and to give time for those brothers through seeing you change as a man to come around and accept him and embrace him. And miracles happen in people's lives. When you look at a brother and you think there is no way in the world those guys will change, they sometimes do. How, how do you deal with it if your real brothers have already died? And My real brother did die. Yes. And uh, it's brutal, and, but again, you love God so much when he changes your heart and you trust him so much. I really don't worry about what his decision is with my loved ones. I believe that he will handle them far better than I ever could. Okay. Does that help? <clears throat> what you just said a few minutes ago, um, that when you reach God, 
if you do get to get to go with Christ, that you will forget about the thing yeah. before. Yeah. Is that in the Bible? It is, and I'm going to get that reference for you, and I'll share it next week at the opening of the show because I can't remember, and it's unfair for me to do that, but I will get it for you, and I'll share it. Okay, I just want to let you know, man, I, I think you're doing a great job, and, and um, you know, I, I know a lot of people that probably didn't believe are starting to think a little bit different. Uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. God bless you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we are going to Sharon and Sandy on line three. Sharon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is, um, uh, as a born-again woman myself, um, uh-huh. I'm finding it hard to witness to relatives and, and friends and loved ones because the, the Mormon view of the afterlife is actually a more attractive thing uh, yeah. to believe in. Yeah. Uh, Mormonism as a, the- as a theology, a seamless theology, is very appealing to the soul. And uh, so they look at it and say, why would I go to not knowing something completely when I have the full description of it here with Mormonism? Uh, that's part and parcel of the problem, is they provide answers that are just not given. And so you are dealing with a very tough subject. Uh, and that's why knowing the Word and prayer and trusting in God is going to be your only resource into helping them see. Okay, well, thank you very much. I'm sorry it's kind of a vague answer, but that's the best I got. Thank you. Okay, God bless you. Same to you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. We're going to Larry, first-time caller, line four. Larry, you have exactly 20 seconds. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay, Sean. First-time caller. Love your show. Thanks, Larry. Um, I was a member for eight years in the Mormon church. Uh I I got stuck into the the thing that, you know, they claim they're the only true church on the face of the earth. Yes. So I I had my name removed uh, from the roles when I just couldn't deal with the these judgmental bishops. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, when I left the church, I have all this anger, and I don't know where to take it from here. Yeah. As far as, you know, going into another church, because all my family is LDS. Yeah. So how, what, what's your advice on that? Larry, it's a, it's a long process. It's like a death. You've kind of been duped in some ways. You see the forest for the trees. You're angry. Eight years of your life, and, and then you find out that it's uh, not what it seemed. And a lot of people go through these different stages of anger and then sorrow and wonderment. And, you know, what happened with me, and I still have anger that comes out because of what it teaches people, but it dies as you completely relinquish your will to God and ask Him to take it because I, sure, I certainly didn't have the ability to take it myself. So I, I just suggest you do that. I'm so sorry we're out of time. But that's my suggestion to you, brother. Thank you. God bless you all. We thank you for tuning in, for tuning into the show and, and the website. We'll see you next week on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel
the 